All right, everybody, welcome to the October 3rd edition of Cascadian Views, and it has been a week that, uh, well, has lasted forever. Uh, we've got everybody here this week, or at least our usual guys, Dan and, and Chris, and... Uh, Howdy. Yeah, the the world's on fire. <laughs> um, yeah. So probably the most pressing national story is that there's an active coronavirus outbreak within the White House. Um a number of staff uh, up to and including the president uh, have come down with it. The president is, as we speak, in Walter Reed Medical Center. Um, the last time Walter Reed took a president on an emergency basis was, I believe, when Reagan was shot. Um, everything else. <laughs> Although has... possibly Trump last year also. Yeah, right. that's, that's true. Uh, they haven't confirmed. In fact, they've said that was a regularly scheduled uh early start to his physical, but uh, it seems super suspicious. Um, however, this time we know it was an emergency visit because Marine One took the president there from the White House directly. Um, apparently it was a bit of a lift. The New York Times has a story out today that uh, staff had to basically forced Trump into it. Um, up to the point where the helicopter was on the lawn, he, uh, he freshly rejected the trip. Uh, really just moments before he went, arguing that would make him look weak. Um, staff basically, I guess, according to the Times, told him he'd better do it now before it gets worse, uh, because him leaving on a stretcher or on oxygen would be uh, even worse of a, uh, a picture. We do now know, as of today, there is reporting from the AP that uh, before the hospital trip, before he left the White House, Trump was on supplemental oxygen. Um, he's now taken two experimental treatments, one with an emergency use authorization from the FDA that the president's physicians requested specifically. That was the experimental uh, synthetic antibody treatment, which has gone through exactly one clinical trial with 275 people spread across two different dosing regimes. Um, right. This is not a well-studied uh, medication. We have zero idea what any uh, like health effects would be uh, in the negative category. We don't know any of the side effects. We don't know any of the reactions. It is, uh, it is something you could charitably say is not what you would prescribe what is theoretically one of the most important people in the world um, at first blush. Yeah. Uh, after he arrived at Walter Reed, he was then given a round of remdesivir, which is a different medication that has an off-label use uh, to help with coronavirus because it's been shown to be, uh, I guess, mildly effective in, in other studies. We don't really have any good treatments. These are just the uh, best guesses we have at one. Uh, that about sound correct? I think that gets us up to today. I mean, the only updates I would say most recently is that we've been getting some conflicting information from, uh, I think the, the staff at Medical Reed who've been at Walter Reed have been attending with the president, as well as apparently his own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as to what his current status is and how well he's doing. And I mean, the doctors came out. And, each other. Yeah, exactly. Doctors gave a very rosy uh, assessment of how he was doing. And then uh, Mark Meadows, yeah, gave this off the record, you know, scare speech to the press saying, well, actually, it's, you know, a lot tougher than we think right now. And we don't really 
see a path to recovery at the moment. The next 48 hours are going to be very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I would add to that is that if you are ever wanting to give an off-the-record statement, please make sure (laughs) that running cameras do not capture you giving that off-the-record statement to reporters. Uh, this is how Meadows was found out as the source of that report from the pool report. Uh, the pool video camera caught Meadows going up to a group of reporters and saying, come over here, I want to go off the record for a minute, and proceeding to talk about Trump's health. Yep. Uh, which is really just about the standard of professionalism you expect out of the White House at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Meadows then went to Reuters and told them exactly the opposite. Like Chris said, it was about 10 minutes later. Um, the doctor who's treating Trump at the, at Walter Reed gave a breakdown of the case that does not at all align with the White House timeline. Um, he was talking about 72 hours earlier, 48 hours right. earlier. Um, all these push it back by the day to the point where the president uh, would have been positive and known he was positive the day of the debate um which makes it a little suspicious that one of the other minor stories we're covering this week uh the cleveland clinic the candidates arrived too late to be tested for coronavirus um Mm -hmm. and uh the clinic instead chris wallace told me personally at the beginning of that debate yeah the the clinic relied instead on the honor system that the campaigns were required to certify that they had tested the candidates and that it had come down uh negative uh which makes me look at that very suspiciously now if so trump didn't show up to i guess 5 p.m or or something like that um Mm -hmm. if the campaign knew that he he was going to test positive is that perhaps why they delayed it? Um, I know Biden showed up too late to be tested, too. So that is a strike against that theory. But it is something that came to mind. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like you mentioned a minute ago, the official timeline already has probably them knowing on Wednesday. So yeah. it's not that much further back to get to Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, 72 hours earlier, uh, after, or before he was admitted to Walter Reed, was when the doctor said he he would have began his treatment um or that he had began treatment um which does not line up like you said um also the event that is the super spreader event may or may not be the thing that actually infected trump there's growing evidence that trump is the one who (laughs) infected hope hicks uh (laughs) which then spread to, you know, all the other uh, attendees and whatnot. But for the, uh, for the symptoms to progress to where they are, medical experts are saying we're, we're actually probably in like the sixth or seventh day of the, the disease's course, which would uh, kind of reverse the polarity of what we thought was going on in terms of the spread there. So, yeah. so that would suggest that he was the one spreading it at the Barrett event. Or, it, you know. Exactly. That that's that's actually exactly oh what uh, the evidence is kind of shaping up to. It it all kind of depends on Hope Hicks. Uh, Hope is, got symptomatic at the the rally in um, Wisconsin. Uh, at that point, she started isolating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know how long the incubation period was, but it does appear, at least based on the typical progression of the disease. That if her system or if her symptoms developed relatively rapidly, that Trump is the nexus. 
And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence uh, around that kind of reinforces that. But you mm-hmm. do have to make the assumption that Hope Hicks case progressed rapidly, whereas Trump's progressed normally. Uh, but if you do make that assumption, a lot of other pieces of the puzzle fall pretty cleanly into, face, uh, into place. Wow. Um, that Amy Coney Barrett event that we're talking about as a super spreader event uh, does seem to be the locus from where the GOP senators uh, picked up the disease. Uh, Tom Tillis is now symptomatic. I posted a link about that just a little while ago. Um, he was described as no symptoms yesterday. Ron Johnson is not only positive, but then proceeded to do campaign events. He went to October Oktoberfest celebration back in his home state of Wisconsin, uh, gave a speech without a mask on. Uh, he says this was totally cool because he was 12 feet away from anybody when he took off the mask. He wore the mask when he was close to anybody, and he doesn't have to isolate because he had no symptoms, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Wow. That's just appalling. I mean, yeah. just the, the reckless indifference to human life. Yeah. Uh, it is. Of ideology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite the comeuppance. Uh, it also potentially puts a hank into the, uh, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. Two of the Republicans who now have COVID are on the Judiciary Committee. Judiciary Committee requires 50% uh, quorum in order to function. We're at the point where if all Democrats boycott, they can't continue. If we right, keep, they... yeah, if we keep every Democrat out of the Judiciary Committee hearing and none of the positive Republicans come in, then uh, they they don't have a quorum and they can't proceed with business. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, terribly. <laughs> Um, also, McConnell seems to be aiming for the lame duck anyway. He just set the Senate home until October 18th. Yeah. Um, there's going to be no floor votes, no nothing, because of the coronavirus epidemic that's now happening on the GOP side. He is, however, uh, letting the Judiciary Committee continue with their work um, you know, as a committee to, to vet the candidate. They're just not going to have any floor votes uh, until October 18th. That pushes back the timeline pretty considerably from what they wanted to be doing. Um, and like I said, the Dems may be able to completely derail the Judiciary Committee. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, I'll just go ahead and be the one who gets really morbid about it. If there were, for some reason, a few fewer Republican senators in total, for whatever reason that might happen, with two already saying that he won't vote for it, and if you got Kelly seated, mm-hmm. I don't know, the math begins to get borderline. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if we get Kelly seated, which uh, theoretically, if the governor of Arizona drags his feet as long as he can, can take till uh, November 30th to be certified and then you know fly to D.C., if we're able to turn that around and seat him, the Republicans can only lose one more vote. Um, and still get this across the floor. There are currently two Republicans sitting home, so as of now, they don't have it. Also, just to get extra morbid, um, if anything should happen to President Trump with his disease and Pence is elevated, Pence is no longer the tie-breaking vote. 
There, right. there is no vice president to break the tie right. if Pence right. is elevated. Um, and 50 votes would fail. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Wow. I try not to give me hope here, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a dark thing to put our hopes on, but they're just being so awful that I can't feel bad about it. You know? <sighs> wow. Yeah. Uh, this really does end up the entire confirmation process. Um, and it's only going to get more so. Uh, Tillis is symptomatic, which means his isolation period is going to have to last longer. Um, mm. To be honest, I cannot see McConnell allowing Ron Johnson into the Senate, like, at all. Um, even McConnell sent out a message today when he dismissed the Senate uh, reminding everybody to wear a fucking mask when they're at home and to, to distance, and he doesn't want any news reports of senators behaving badly or not observing CDC guidelines. He's I, I think he recognizes how kind of dire the situation is, um, mm -hmm. at least on a certain level. He still wants to ram through everything, but he does not want any of the senators dying. So I, I, I don't think Ron Johnson is going to have a sympathetic attempt to come to the Senate floor while, you know, positive for COVID, like he seems to assume he can do. Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, it, like, I think the optics are just terrible. They've had all this happen in a context where they've been downplaying the severity of the pandemic, uh, downplaying and discouraging all of the recommended safety guidelines that Trump's own agencies have been trying to get people to follow. And now the very heart of the government has been struck down with this. I mean, there's just no way to make this look good. It's just awful, awful timing. I mean, and I can't think of a government that's deserved it more, but yeah, yeah, it's just, it's astounding. Absolutely astounding. Yeah. Um, Chris Christie is another big name that's come down with COVID in the last few days. He's now in hospital. Um, they're saying it's just as a precaution, but you don't check yourself into a hospital. Like a doctor admits you. <laughs> Uh, yes. So a, a medical professional has decided that Chris Christie uh, needs to go to the hospital. Christie is saying because he has a history of asthma, um, which kind of makes sense. I mean, sure. at first blush, I'll accept that. <laughs> I, I'm suspicious, <laughs> so, so we, we'll see where, where that goes. Um, he's, he's also an interesting piece of your whole timeline theory because... From what I can tell, his main contact was helping Trump prep for the debate. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which would suggest he may have been infected, possibly by Trump, before, like, pre-debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the White House has been very reluctant to ask for a mask. In fact, Trump will berate staffers who wear masks around him and tell, him to, tell them to take that thing off. Uh, that was yeah. part of the reporting today. Suddenly, though, after this Trump diagnosis, every photo of the White House staff uh, has them in masks. <laughs> Horses out of the barn, but yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, man. Although I guess Pence has tested negative so far, even though he was sitting literally right in the middle of all those people at the... Yeah. 
at the yeah. Barrett. Um, th- there is kind of one weird wrinkle to to that actually that may bring up uh, Pence too that I want to talk about. Um, just because there's there's something a little bit suspicious of it. We have uh, nearly 24 hours a day. We have a planned. Um, they call them training flights. Uh, they're not really training. They're just to keep everybody like on their toes. But the United States has a, uh, a system of planes called the E-6Bs, uh, which are capable of directing America's submarine-launched nuclear deterrent. Um, they try to keep one in the air at all times. In the event of anything catastrophic in D.C., one will scramble with somebody who would be authorized to launch nuclear missiles, uh, assuming everybody above them in the command chain were, were killed. The last time it had actually been used uh, was 9-11, when they put it up um, with Bush on board. Uh, the military scrambled one of those 12 minutes uh, before Trump's COVID diagnosis. It wasn't one of the routine flights that happened all the time. In fact, the routine flight was already in the air above the Midwest at that time. They scrambled one uh, outside D.C., I suspect from the call name, uh, it was Card001. Uh, Cardinal is, if I recall correctly, the uh, the internal name used for the Secretary of State. I suspect Pompeo was on that plane, uh, based on the, the call sign on that. Uh, that struck me as really weird. I mentioned in the group that uh, we normally have those things, you know, like, in case of a missile strike on D.C., that, that takes out the White House or something. You know, in the terrorist attacks of 9-11, we weren't sure if they were going to be targeting, in fact, they had targeted the Pentagon. We weren't sure if they were going to be targeting the president or anything like that. It makes sense to put one up. I don't see why you put one up in these circumstances. I don't see it at all. We're, we're not under active threat or anything. Um, a lot of the NACSEC, uh, national security people I follow on, on uh, Twitter and the like, thought it was basically just to send a message to somebody like mm-hmm. Iran or something with an ICBM that, you know, this is not the time to take advantage of the chaos. Uh, but it also makes me think Trump was panicking a little bit. Um, and that also is reinforced uh, today with some additional reporting that Trump was asking if he was going to go out like, and I forget the name, but it was one of his friends in New York who died of the coronavirus back in the spring. Uh, he talked repeatedly about, is this the end? Is this how it happens and all that? I think Trump was terrified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't say I blame him, but yeah, 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 that's all very settling and very, you know, globally stabilizing things to have happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and also this is, this is getting a little into conspiracy theory territory, but did you see the thing in his hair at the debate? N- not the thing in his mask while he was walking out to, um, Right, there were those close-up the pictures of like the side of his head. Right. Yeah, there or, was a, a weird thing attached to it. The the campaign released an off-the-record thing saying it was, I, I think, a hair extension or something like that, uh, huh. and just a weird clip. But that's not the way those clips look. And there was a doctor on Twitter talking about uh, it might be a valve to relieve skull pressure, um, and there was a disease which I got him blanking at the moment for, or a disorder, excuse me. And one of the side effects was trouble with balance and walking, um, and it would use one of these valves to relieve, you know, pressure on the brain or whatnot. Um, and it just seemed to really dovetail with me nicely with the trouble we saw him with the ramps and the stairs and, and all that earlier this year. Um, 
I'm I'm not entirely sure the president is very well. I, I think even before the the COVID thing, and it makes me think that the trip to Walter Reed was uh, because he has some pretty serious underlying conditions. Yeah, well, I mean, there have yeah. been so many incidents even before that, but definitely since then of him visibly slurring, of him having difficulty walking, difficulty picking things up. It's it's not far fetched. Yeah, he wasn't all that healthy in the first place. That's a bad place to be when the co- the epidemic of the year comes knocking. Mm. <sighs> oh, and by the way, there is actually a pretty good explanation for the hose or the tube going up to his mask. It, the campaign has since said uh, that it was an earpiece that he took off like halfway through there. And you do notice mm. it, it disappears in the later half of the uh the video. So I, I don't think that the, the oxygen tube conspiracy theory that we talked about in the group a little bit uh, is, is necessarily true. But there is something weird about that that strange headpiece he wore. Yeah. Yeah. And this circles back around to Chris's point earlier about the mystery trip to Walter Reed in the middle of the night uh, like a year and a half ago uh, I think it was at this point. There is some really thick smoke that makes me think there's a fire um, happening with the the president's health. Which is terrifying. Like, in the middle of a global pandemic, the last thing you want is your, you know, leader coming down with it. That's just a surefire way to panic. And, you know, frankly, even a bad leader is better than no leader. Mm -hmm. Um, In a time like this, it's just... And that makes me so mad at Trump, too. Like, you know this. This is not only, you know, this is your fault. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, wear a fucking mask. Make sure the people around you wear a mask. It is your fault that the United States has no president right now. You know, he's in a hospital room in Walter Reed, uh, occasionally on oxygen, according to his chief of staff. This uh, is is terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, even as chaotic a leader as Trump is, uh, just having that uncertainty of who actually has to say, even if they have to totally lead him by the hand and he forgets from minute to minute what he's supposed to be saying or doing or what his strategy or policy is, the fact that it's still... He's the guy who has to sign on the dotted line for, you know, these major decisions. And if it's confused as to who that's supposed to be, is it Pence? Is it Meadows? Is it whomever? You know, Pelosi, you know, God only knows. Alexander Haig rising from the grave yeah. to pull it off again. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just terrifying. And it's somehow managed to be even more terrifying than Trump himself being the person in that position. Yeah. Um, Let's talk some more about Trump, because there was some other news this week. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As Chris reminded me, the New York Times got hold of, I I think, 21 years of Trump's taxes. Um, Not just the top line numbers like they had a while back, but the actual like taxes themselves. They cover the period up to, I believe, the 2017 returns or 2018 Mm -hmm. returns. Uh, They don't have the last few years. They've got everything up to, I believe, the second year of the presidency. and they they paint a very curious picture. You want to tell us more about him, Chris? 
Yeah, well, so a couple of things stand out. One is that like, uh, like many wealthy people, he's managed to game the tax system such that he often got large refunds or paid next to nothing in taxes. Um, a lot of that though was also losses, which is the other thing they revealed that most of his business enterprises were pretty heavy losers and he was essentially bankrupt until The Apprentice came along. And it was really The Apprentice and the licensing from that that's like been one of the main things. And the third component of that was that even with that little liquid inflow keeping him floating in the last few years, um, he still has several hundred million dollars in debt that are coming due within the next year or two. So, you know, this obviously swings back to the whole Russian financing question and swings back to the various ways he and his family have been enrich enriching themselves off of the presidency. It's not a pretty picture any way around. Yeah, and somebody, uh, a lawyer who I, I listened to, I don't know, Dan, if you're familiar with Legal Eagle on YouTube. He, he has a, no, a great law it. channel, though, for, you know, kind of explainers and, and case backstories for laymen. Um, mm -hmm. It might not be technical enough for you. You went to an actual law school. But for someone who did not, um, mm -hmm. he's fantastic. Uh, and he, he really kind of looked into the stories of Trump's taxes this week. And one of the things he stressed is tax losses versus business losses. You know, if you lose actual money, it doesn't really help you to deduct it from your taxes. But if you can show a loss that isn't really there, basically, that does improve your position. Uh, and the majority of Trump's losses seem to be actual business losses, like not tax defraud losses, with one major exception. Um, but they show, you know, actual projects cratering and burning. Uh, which does not paint a picture of a good businessman. Like if you light a million dollars on fire, on yeah, and just you know it goes away, you can deduct that as a loss, but you're not really coming out ahead. Just not paying taxes on the money that you burned, um, right. which seems to be mostly what's happened with Trump. He's lost massive amounts uh, of money on business projects. His one actual tax loss uh, that's not a business loss is where he's getting into fraud trouble. Um, the tax code is set up to, at least this is my understanding from this lawyer, um, allow for an abandonment of a business and you lose, uh, for tax purposes, you get to deduct all your investment in that business. Uh, but you have to actually abandon it. You have to step away for nothing. Uh, you can't get any remuneration. You, you can't recover anything from it. You can't sell it. You can't get anything of value in return for it. You have to actually abandon the business. Um, Trump claimed this abandonment uh, exemption for his taxes for the casino at Atlantic City that he had. But he did get something of value for the business. He got a 5% stake in the, the next business that was taking it over. Um, he actually did exchange the business for something of value and didn't abandon it. Um, and I guess that's where most of the trouble he's having with the IRS is coming from, because he amended his taxes to say he had this huge loss, he abandoned it, and he's entitled to like $60 million. And they just turned around and I gave it to him. Um, and now they're going back because I guess every tax refund of more than $20 million has to, by law, be audited. Um, and it didn't happen at first. And then the IRS circled back around and is actually auditing this, this claimed break he made in his uh, uh, claimed tax break he received in his amended filings. And 
now they're looking into it, and this is exactly the issue they're they're keying in on. Apparently, is that he did not abandon business; he sold it for a five percent stake in the next business taking over the location. Hmm. I think it's pretty better funny late than never. <laughs> oh God. You know, his claim of audit that was the reason that he couldn't release his taxes for um, going on five years now. Right. <laughs> it's actually become an actual audit. Yeah. Well, so the the actual audit was started a while ago. Like, this has been an active audit now for 10 years. Um, the claimed tax breaks go back to 2007, I believe. And he filed the amended tax return in 2009 or 2010. Uh, then the audit started the year after that when they, they circled back around and realized they shouldn't have just, you know, sent him a check for however many tens of millions of dollars. Huh. And it's still not concluded. Yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's fighting a tooth and fucking nail. Um, I guess he's really dragging it out. The IRS is pretty convinced they have him dead to rights. Um, they're not backing away on this. And this actually also circles back around to a story where numerous high-level White House staff were intimidating the IRS at the beginning of Trump's term to interfere with an audit. Uh, that story came out of the Inspector General's office. Uh, it was reported by numerous IRS employees. I think there's a pretty good chance the audit was Trump's audit. Like he, he wants this over and done with. He's been fighting Obama on it. Well, I mean, not Obama personally, but Obama's IRS for like three quarters of Obama's presidency. Right. Thinks he can make it go away. Yeah. I would. I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't been more of a priority for him during his eight years. I guess he would have had to do it more under the radar. Than yeah. he normally acts, but it's also kind yeah. of an embarrassing story from him. For him, uh, remember yeah. how touchy he was during the campaign about the attack that he bankrupted a casino? Like he, he oh, got yeah. visibly upset about that on the GOP debates during the primary. Uh, I don't think it's a story he likes to see out there. If he could quietly fucking kill the audit without anybody knowing about it, that that seems like it would be the way he'd want to go. Or alternatively, sure. just delay it until the end of time. He's mm -hmm. been successful for damn near a decade at this point. Why not just keep at it? Yeah. Dang. Uh, let's see. We also had a debate this week. We forgot all about that. <laughs> we recall that. Uh, yeah. It was an embarrassment to democracy. It was just the worst thing you could possibly imagine. Uh, it made a lot of people question if we were going to have more debates and then they said they were, but they were going to cut off candidates' mics, uh, which I don't think really works when the dude's standing, you know, 10 feet away from you. Uh, you can just yell at you from there. Chris yeah. Wallace looked like a buffoon. Uh, he's also being hated by everybody on the right right now, which he deserves. So, Boo-hoo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. The enemy of my enemy means they're being ganged up on, basically. Yeah. Meets mm -hmm. uh, more enemies. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chris Wallace was even more embarrassing when you consider that he actually had a pretty good run as deba a debate moderator four years ago. Uh, it was Fox News' first time getting one of uh, their news reporters to moderate a debate. It was considered a big breakthrough moment for the the network, getting 
you know, recognition from the mainstream press. Uh, the Committee of, on Presidential Debates is nonpartisan. It's made up of people from, I shouldn't say it's nonpartisan, it's bipartisan. It's made up of people from both major parties. It was founded by uh, two high-ranking campaign managers from both parties with the sole mission of facilitating good debates. Uh, Chris Wallace being allowed into that club in 2016 was a, a very big moment, and he performed mm. well. Like, he, he was fine. He wasn't Yeah, I'd have to go back, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. Back to our some of our old comments from back then, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, you're right, that we did consider him to be one of the better moderators. Yeah, yeah he was fine. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like the most amazing debate I've ever seen, but Chris Wallace performed well. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was fine. And then he completely face-planted this year to the point where I don't think he gets another chance. Yeah. He just, well, he just got walked over. It was mm -hmm. miserable. It, it was it was it was nearly impossible to watch. It was just that terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was like openly laughing at the candidates' one-liners, uh, mostly Trump's. Although we did get a chuckle at a couple of Bidens towards the end, which I think sends the wrong message. It's reinforcing that behavior. You know. Yeah. Just meh. Um, the debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence will go on. Uh, on location, the yes. unless debate, Pence turns positive, yeah, right. The committee mm. has decided to acquiesce to a Biden-Harris uh, campaign request that the candidates be separated by 14 feet. It had initially only been six. Uh, mm -hmm. The committee said they weren't going to do that for about a day, and then uh, you know the sky is falling and everybody's <laughs> getting coronavirus, and they decided that'd be a good idea after all. Um, there's a lot of pushback that they should debate in D.C. because they're both in D.C. Don't require them to fly anywhere. Um, also, they don't have to be in the same room. I don't know like, how well we know our campaign history, but the very first televised presidential debate, they were not in the same room. Uh, Nixon, Wait, Nixon was in Los Angeles and uh, Kennedy was in New York. And they had that emblazoned beneath the people where they were. And they showed them on split screen. No uh, way. Yeah. Really? We've had the technology to do this since black and white TV in the 60s. I had no idea. That was just not kind of how I pictured it at all. Huh. Yeah. That is wild. The uh, 1964 debate. So they were on stage together in the 1960 debate. Uh, okay. In 1964, they were in Los Angeles and New York. Excuse me. Okay. So Goldwater and Johnson. Huh. Okay. Wow. Uh, here, hold on just one oh. moment. Let me, going up in the Cascadian Views group right now is a picture of that debate with the split screen element kind of emblazoned beneath it. So you can check it out. Uh, I believe. I'll be damned. Yeah. So we've we've definitely yeah, you're had right. yeah wow. we've had the technology to do this for literally ages. I don't know why they're still making the uh, the candidates appear together in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I mean the if Biden gets sick, I mean un unbelievable. It was such a risk, such a reckless reckless thing to do, <sighs> man. It's uh, 
it's just really getting out of control at this point. And it's chickens coming home to roost. I'm not even... I don't wish ill on anybody, but I am not surprised and or uh, remotely sympathetic <laughs> at this point. Uh, every part of this is brought about by the people at the top. They, they've spent this entire campaign uh, downgrading uh, what we should think of the virus, trying to ignore it, telling us it would just go away, telling nobody to do anything. Uh, in fact, apparently Trump is issuing statements through Rudy Giuliani that uh, Trump caught the virus because he needs to show Americans we can fight it. Um, and that the president can't be locked up, which is just, yeah. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, since we were talking about the debates, uh, if Trump is symptomatic, he, he has to isolate for 10 to 14 days, depending on which government uh, branch you're listening to after he uh, no longer has symptoms. I, I think at this point, we should not expect another presidential debate. No, no. I mean, to be honest, given you know, how the disease seems to be progressing for him so far and all of his comorbidities, I mean, I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say it's going to be a pleasant surprise for him if he leaves the if he's actively out and about and campaigning before election day you know just because yeah. it hits people hard i mean boris johnson i was commenting about this he was out for a month yeah he was yeah, in the he was, icu, he was in ICU for a week yeah icu for a week uh, the hospital for i think a couple of weeks and then he was laid up he was out at i think some country house for you know the rest of the month before he was even appearing publicly again. And he's 20 years younger than Trump. Mm -hmm. And not exactly, you know, the healthiest person on earth, but I, I don't no. think he has quite as many comorbidities uh, as Trump does. Uh, I, does he smoke? I think he might. I'm going to ask might, the Google. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, in any case... Yeah, you know, he's 20 years younger, and that's the main comorbidity that we know of for COVID. It hits you if you're old. Yeah. Uh, the British media says uh, there is no evidence that Boris Johnson smokes. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess there is a picture of him smoking a cigarette when he was at college in like a prep school <laughs> in France or something like that. Which might be where the, the suspicion comes from, but aside from that, there's been no direct evidence that Johnson smokes. Huh. All right. So I'm going to go out on a limb and make a prediction. I don't think it's that far out on a limb. If Trump bounces back enough to um, be spouting off his mouth in the way we know he's prone to, I predict there will be a trial balloon about delaying the election because of his lack of campaign time. Mm. Probably. I mean, but they can't. I mean, it's just they'd have to get Pelosi in the House to agree. I'm not saying it makes any sense. But they're going to clamor for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Excuse me, there is one more documented evidence of Boris Johnson smoking when his baby was born. 
when one of his children was born, he smoked a, uh, a little cigar, which is just cigar tobacco wrapped up into a cigarette. Uh, and we know about that because he, he told that story as part of giving evidence in Parliament about why they shouldn't ban smoking in parks. It was because he once smoked a cigar when his child was born. Hmm. All right. So it sounds like he does not have a habit. <laughs> no, he, he does not have a habit. Uh, he may have when he was younger. Like I said, there's a, a picture of him at a prep school in uh, France where he went to study. He, he speaks pretty fluent French, by the way. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, did not. Yeah, I don't know if he admits that so much in the UK. I don't like <laughs> France that much. But because of going to prep friend. school in France, he, he does speak fluent French. And he'll speak to like Belgian and French media in French uh, <laughs> when they do interviews and whatnot. But yeah. There's pictures of him uh, smoking in college, uh, I believe drinking as well in that picture. And he told us about this time he smoked a cigar when this child was born. Hmm. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, Barack Obama put cocaine use and pot in his memoir, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, w, w also admitted to cocaine use. But, uh, yeah. I'm just <coughs> I'm kind of Anyhow, scared for the country yeah. now. Uh, yeah. Because also, and not to get morbid about this again, but I really think we need an election to reject Trump. If this country is any real hope of, of coming together again, like a sound rejection is needed. Yeah. And if the guy dies before he get a chance to throw him out, um, I think the break is pretty permanent at that point. Like he becomes a martyr. Yeah, or at least something that the Republicans can conveniently sweep under the rug and forget. Like the fact of his death would definitely overshadow yeah. everything that was wrong about his presidency, even though his death would have been a direct result of things that were wrong <laughs> about yeah. his presidency. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I do agree. I mean, as you know, Ironic and delicious as it would be, it's better for the country if he lives. A little bit of breaking news that's not the breaking news that uh, Chris just posted, although I guess we'll talk about that in a second as well. But uh, members of numerous members of his office uh, are now accusing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton of taking bribes uh and are asking for a law enforcement investigation that came out oh my gosh four minutes ago hmm. wasn't there also some allegations against the lieutenant governor of texas along those lines as well I mean, let me see if i can look it up uh uh and, oh and by the way the texas attorney general is already currently under indictment for securities fraud so yeah yeah uh so that's gonna be fun Uh, the story is breaking out of the uh, Austin Statesman. Uh, wow. Read more of this. Uh, it looks oh. like it's most of his top aides, including his chief of staff. Uh, seven total people in the upper tiers of the attorney general's office uh, are seeking the investigation uh, in his official capacity as attorney general of Texas we could have put a fraction of the money that's gone to A.B. McGrath and gotten it to M.J. Hagar. Mm -hmm. My goodness. <laughs> uh, the letter 
was the first name on the letter was Paxton's first assistant, which I, I believe makes him his chief of staff. Maybe I'm I'm just reading that wrong, but isn't the first assistant the I guess that would be the deputy attorney general. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. The, the, the first what thereof. Yeah, the Texas equivalent. The the first assistant uh resigned Friday and sent the letter as well as uh the deputy and as well as his deputy and the deputy attorneys general overseeing uh the criminal investigations division, the civil litigation division, and the administration and policy division. Mm-hmm. So that's just about all of the deputy attorney generals. If you got criminal and civil and administrative, what other branches of law are there? Yeah. I know it might be a step down for him, but I feel like uh, Beto should (laughs) consider this. Oh, man. The joint letter concluded, we have a good faith belief that the attorney general is violating federal and or state law, including prohibitions related to improper influence, abusive office, bribery, and other criminal offenses. So uh, there we go. Texas is burning uh, from the inside out. This also comes after the governor uh, restricted every Texas county to one ballot collection drop box, uh, despite the fact that Texas counties are occasionally thousands of square miles and have millions of people in them. Uh, and I guess we'll get to Chris's breaking story that he posted. The president has sent his second video message uh, since the the uh, coronavirus positive test, he also tweeted one other time today where he called for a coronavirus stimulus bill to be passed. Uh, that oh. happened right before the Senate left for three weeks. Uh, but he said we need yeah. a stimulus now. Uh, Chris, what's in the new video? Uh, the new video is him saying basically what Meadows said, which is interesting which is, I'm feeling much better, but the next few days are gonna be the real test of how I'm doing, and I need to get back out there again, is <laughs> basically what he said. Wow. He also acknowledges he wasn't really doing too well <laughs> um, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just quoting from it, uh, I came here when I wasn't feeling so well. Uh, I'm feeling much better now. Uh, and he said that, over the last day, his condition's gotten better, which seems to be an implicit acknowledgement that his condition was not good. Oh, well. Don't die, Mr. President. I think that's... Yeah, that's pretty much where we're at. Um, anybody? Are, are those cabinets behind him in the video? <laughs> I think they are. Are those like weird doors that open halfway or are those cabinets? They look like cabinets. And also this looks like maybe it might have been a folding table that someone brought in. (laughs) And basically it was like, what can I do that I can record a video? Vaguely at a desk. I don't know. That table looks like pretty heavily polished wood. I'm not not sure I believe the folding table part. No, um, my, I had that table. I can see the leaves there. This is like a, just a quick knock together kind of. Okay. <laughs> Chris is much more adult than I am. I trust his eye on furniture. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to see where this goes. But uh, God damn it. It's all so terrifying. Yeah. 
2020 has been an incredible year. It really has. So somebody talk about how historians in the future are going to like specialize in individual days. <laughs> like, yeah, I wrote my PhD on October 3rd, 2020, with a little bit of, of you know, overlap into October 4th or something. Like you have periods of history and we're really cramming them down in there. Yeah. You I, don't, I don't know if we can sustain that pace, like just on a mental health level. Like things are happening are, too fast. So it's October 3rd, right? Yeah. We are literally one month out from the big Atlantic story about his comments on the military and his kind of constant disparagement of the military over the years, oh which was immediately followed by Bob Woodward. Then we got a little breathing space. <laughs> then we did the tax story. Then we did the debate. And now we're doing this. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, all right. Let's see. Any, I guess that's related to, to the COVID story too, but Barr is refusing to quarantine, even though he's been in documented close contact with people who are now positive cases. Um, that strikes me as immensely stupid as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's also very on brand for him as the worst person in the government, apart from his boss. Which is also surprising <laughs> to me. This is not who I thought Bill Barr would be, like, yeah. at all. He wasn't like this under H.W. Bush. I, I mean, he was a right-wing, you know, rah-rah kind of culture warrior guy, but he was not actively subverting the United States sort of guy. <laughs> like, Wasn't uh, he the guy that kind of, though, was spearheading Bush, you know, pardoning all the Iran-Contra people? I thought yeah. he had his yeah. hands all over that. He was but pretty that's far. still very institutional republicanism, which yeah. doesn't say good things about institutional republicanism. But, yeah, it's different from Trumpism. Yeah, it was kind of Reagan loyalty and belief that they uh, yeah. they did the right thing in Iran-Contra, no matter what Congress says. But mm -hmm. there wasn't any sort of, like, desire to transform the United States into an autocracy. Yeah. Well... <laughs> All the Trumpkins had to come from somewhere. It's, yeah. yeah. He, was, uh, he was the deputy assistant director for legal policy uh, on domestic issues from 1982 to 1983. So he worked with Reagan for a year, um, then left to do lobbying and stuff, uh, mm -hmm. and then came back in 89 for H.W. Bush as first assistant attorney general and then the actual attorney general. All right. Uh, any local stories from up in Washington? Not that are coming to me. The, the national news has kind of eclipsed yeah, everything. everything really. out. Yeah, so it's hard for local stuff to really peek through everything else. I mean, there's been a lot of back and forth on the production of the 787 I think that final decision did come this week that it is going to be leaving Washington state, which after, is going to be very, yeah. yeah. After Boeing got uh, almost $2 billion in tax breaks for it, which they're keeping exactly. by the way. Yep. Sounds that, right. That's going to be absolutely devastating for Snohomish and Northern King counties and the state as a whole. But yeah, that's a whole lot of, uh, that's a whole lot of uh, tax revenue and population that's just going to go up in smoke. 
the Washington State Department of Agriculture says that the murder hordents are about to enter, and I'm quoting, a slaughter phase, end quote. <laughs> Anything interesting there? Uh, <laughs> uh, to, I, give the, to give the full quote uh, from Washington Department of Agriculture entomologist Sven Eric Speecher, uh, which sounds like the most Scandinavian name ever. Asian giant hornets this time of year start going into what we call the slaughter phase. They will visit apiaries, basically mark a hive for their other hornets, then attack it in force, removing every bee from the hive, decapitating them, killing all the workers, and then spending the next few days harvesting the uh, bee eggs and pupa out of the hive as their food source. Huh. Yeah. Well... Uh, the first in, uh, inkling that they had moved on to this came from northeastern Whatcom County, where six hornets were captured on September 21st in Blaine, uh, and that they had started tearing apart a hive uh, in order to get to the eggs and pupa. Wow. All right. I think it's going to start snowing here in a few days. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Still simmering. <laughs> we thought we were done with the murder hornets a couple of months ago. Nope. <laughs> they were still waiting. Yeah. Slaughter phase, Dan. Slaughter wow. phase. All right. I'm not going to leave out. I'm not going outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I guess it's going to wrap it up for this incredibly condensed week that has felt like a year. Um, I'm sure there'll be even more. Check in with you guys next week. Hope we still have a president. <laughs> yeah. Yes. One president. Who who knows who it will be? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them. Um, actually, let's let's circle back around to that because you brought up a good point. There's been a lot of conflicting information about whether Pelosi has been brought in on this. You guys notice that? Like in terms of succession or whether? Yeah, well, in, in terms of continuity of government planning. Uh, usually yeah. when something like this happens, they, they try to coordinate everybody, make sure everybody like is in separate, safe locations. Uh, so yeah. if anything does happen, you don't lose the entire line of secession. MSNBC reported that Nancy Pelosi had been uh, briefed on continuity of government plans, but Pelosi's office then denied this and said there's been no contact whatsoever from the White House. Um, and then, I guess, like a day later, said that they just got a briefing from the White House, but it was basically nothing. It was just uh, literally what they had already given the press about their president's health status. Yeah, that is flabbergasting, but also about what I expect from this administration. Yeah, Because uh, Pelosi is third in line. Um, right. Behind Pence. There is... I'm not exactly sure how it works, but there is a separate executive branch line of secession that goes to the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, but I believe those are only activated if the legislative branch has been taken out, basically. Um, is that correct? Well, yeah, it, under the 25th Amendment, and I think the Presidential Succession Act, it basically goes, yeah, the President, Vice President, the uh, Speaker of the House, then the President pro tempore, who is Chuck Grassley, as I uh, <laughs> pointed out with his amazing tweets earlier this week. <laughs> Uh, uh, he's also chair, but well, no, I guess he's no longer chair of Senate Judiciary. I guess Lindsey Graham is now, but um, Republicans after have term that, limits in their uh, committee chairs, yeah, exactly. 
So after that, it's yeah, Secretary of State, then I think Defense, Secretary of the Secretary. Treasury, and it goes on down the list in order that the cabinet positions were created. So it's not any, you know, defined reason or you know importance of the department. It's just literally in the chronological order the department was created is the order of succession through the executive branch. I thought they'd changed that up a few times. They ha- well, they had. I mean, the most okay. recent time was with the. I think, I th- believe there was legislation following the Twenty Fifth Amendment that created that list. But yeah, that's that's how it's broken down. So that's why, for example, the I believe Secretary of Homeland Security is last on the list, which which is fine because we don't have one. We've just got a maniac who's the acting. Secretary of Homeland Security. There's a lot of acting uh, secretaries in the line of succession because Trump has just not been appointing people. Um, but yeah, so Pompeo, then Mnuchin, uh, somewhere in the line, I think fairly close to that would be probably Barr. Oh, let me, we can, we can look this up. This is easy to see. Oh yeah, I, I actually have it up um yeah vice president speaker of the house president pro tem secretary of state secretary defense, of treasury Tre- secretary of defense attorney general secretary of the interior agriculture commerce labor youth health and human services housing urban development it then would be secretary of transportation but elaine chow is not actually eligible so they would skip her uh then right. would be secretary of energy secretary of education secretary of veterans affairs and then secretary of homeland security mm-hmm. yeah uh, <laughs> Homeland Security is so far down on the list. Yeah. As, yep. as the it's newest the department. Newest department created. Yeah. So under the original um, act of secession, the uh, legislative positions were not uh, looped in in the order they're in now. It was President Pro Tem and then Speaker of the House. Right. And then in 1886, they changed it to get rid of them, basically, um, and only go with the cabinet ministers. Or excuse me, cabinet secretaries here in America, mm-hmm. um, and then when they changed it again in 1947, at the urging of Truman, they reinstated the uh, legislative uh, positions. Truman had just taken over for FDR um, after FDR's death, uh, and Truman wrote a letter to Congress that he was very personally uh, unhappy with and did not believe that the president should have the power to appoint the person who would be his immediate successor in the event of his own death or inability to act and that the presidency should, whenever possible, be filled by an elective office. Uh, And then they, so following that, they put the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem back in and reversed the order. Right. I think at the time, the Senate Senate, uh, President Pro Tem was also ancient, like the man had been born in 1869 at the time the the act was passed in 1947. So uh, that might have been part of the reason why the positions were reversed yeah uh so hopefully none of that information becomes relevant but now you know it in case it does just in case (laughs) yeah all right uh i think that'll do it for this week have a good week guys all right Mm, bye bye